Hello, and welcome to the Page to Pixel podcast. I am your host, Reed Jolin, and join with me is Jeremy. Say hello, Jeremy. Hi there. So I'm not going to ask you how you're doing. What I'm going to actually ask you right off the bat is why do Argonians have breasts? Um, well, I have watched a 15-minute YouTube video about this in preparation for this episode, and there are three prevailing theories. So either they hold breast milk, hist sap, or just nothing. Um, my prevailing theory that I'm going to agree with is that they're nothing because apparently the hist made them after an image of humans, so they probably just put them on because that's what female humans have. But uh, I spent way too much time watching that video this morning, so that's that's, a good, that's that's about all I have to talk about there. The best part of waking up is Argonians filling cups. That's right. That was perfect. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we are talking about the Elder Scrolls. So this is going to be a multiple part series. I'm not sure how many episodes we're going to have. I think we're planning on like three or four. But uh, we've kind of done smaller series in the past, like our last episode, Prince of Persia. Yeah, there's a lot of like this earlier games and stuff like that. But we talked about like the quadrilogy. And that's only three or four games. But when you're talking about something like the Elder Scrolls, which has a huge scope and scale of decades of time, and uh, information and you know just a lot of experiences over the last couple decades there's obviously going to be a lot of time to kind of break down all the smaller details and that's this is kind of a challenge that we wanted to do to take on a bigger series now that we're into our second season and that's what we're starting with is uh, I mean the Elder Scrolls I know is very uh, near and dear to a lot of people uh, myself and Jeremy included so that's where we're kind of starting with today so to kind of outline things for this first episode we're kind of dubbing it the origins episode. So in this episode, we're going to kind of talk about the uh, the mythology, the origins of the world of Elder Scrolls. We're going to talk a little bit about the races and locations of the Elder Scrolls. And then for this first episode, we are going to talk about the plot and just overall um, experiences with Arena, which is the first game, and then Daggerfall, which is the second Elder Scrolls game. So before we start doing that, uh, maybe just... We can talk really briefly about our gaming experiences with uh, these two games. So if you guys aren't familiar with Arena and Daggerfall, which we are going to talk about, is the fact that they came out, I want to say Arena came out in March of 1994 on MS-DOS, yep, and Elder Scrolls Daggerfall came out uh, in 96. So these games came out, you know, within about two years of each other in the mid-90s. And were these games that you'd ever played before we started doing this, Jeremy? You know, honestly, I can remember the first time I played Arena like it was a couple weeks ago. Oh, yeah? How was it, that? Because, because it was a couple weeks ago. Yep, same here. Um, yeah, it's not fun. No, it's it's uh, very, very 1994, yes. Um, I made it out of the initial dungeon once, forgot to save, because auto-saving isn't a thing in 1994. And have yet to remake it out of the dungeon. So it's a great experience. Yeah, really good, really good, really memorable. A lot of nostalgia for two weeks ago. Yeah, same thing for me. Like Arena, Daggerfall. I kind of like knew about the games, but my first game, Elder Scrolls, that I played was uh, Morrowind 
back right around the time it came out, probably a little bit after. So I, I just knew it as Morrowind um, and Oblivion, but you see the Elder Scrolls and like number three, number four. So obviously there are, um, you know, early yeah predecessors. So I'd never played them. I'd never really paid much attention to it because I'm having too much fun with Morrowind or Oblivion. So um, I remember not too far after when Skyrim was originally released, they released an edition that had all of the games in it. I almost bought it because it had like all the disc versions of one, two, three, four, and five. And I almost bought it. But um, what's nice about um, Arena and Daggerfall is that they are available on Steam for free, um, which is pretty, pretty, uh, pretty good price. A pretty good deal. <laughs> pretty good deal. Um, granted, yeah, I, like Jeremy, I played Arena really briefly. It is very difficult to kind of go back to. I'm sure there's a modding community out there that has made it a bit better uh, to play. I did play Daggerfall a bit. I did play uh, Daggerfall Unity to be more specific, which is this ongoing uh, ongoing project that a lot of people are spending their time on essentially rebuilding or remodifying uh, Daggerfall in the Unity engine and adding a lot of mods and stuff like that. So I downloaded this mod package and it really kind of uh, changes a lot of the the smaller well i guess smaller and larger issues with daggerfall and i was playing that for a bit and i actually really enjoyed it uh yes it's very janky still but it does kind of really remind me a lot of morrowind so yeah that's really our experiences with these games is we kind of knew about them a little bit but in terms of like diving into it um this is the first time we've ever had the opportunity to do you want to talk a little bit more about your general impressions of these first two before we get into the lore here so what I noticed right away when I started Arena was it was very reminiscent of a game called Might and Magic 7 that I played a little bit um, growing up. Very D&D-esque. Um, mm-hmm. So I, it kind of just brought back some nostalgia of my, you know, early teens or late teens, I guess I should say. Very, very old school fantasy, and I, I don't know, I appreciate that that art and style. When I was replaying Daggerfall, walking around the cities, some of the the music that they had, even though it was probably probably eight bit, not sixteen bit, but it just had a very really, really cool fantasy feel to it. Yeah, it felt very nineteen eighties Dungeons and Dragons. Yes, and that's one of the things that is, um, if you're a fan of D anD D, would probably stand out to you about these games is that. Um, the early history of Bethesda, to kind of talk about it just briefly, was developed, uh, well, developed, founded by Chris Weaver in um, 1986, I believe. And they originally started off um, building physics engines for, like, sports games. Their first game was called Gridiron, and then they made a Wayne Gretzky hockey game. Um, and then after that, they started doing a little bit more um, in-depth work. They did a, a, a adaptation of Terminator. And then what was nice about this whole process is that the team... At Bethesda, we're able to kind of get together and have weekly D&D matches or matches, I guess. <laughs> matches. <laughs> matches. D&D plays. You know, they'd be playing it together. Um, so they were all kind of nerds in, in the fantasy sense. And I think a lot of that you can see as a major influence in especially the first two games. It's very much your prototypical sword and sorcery, you know, elves and, and, and sorcery. And it, it's cool. It really is cool if that's your sort of thing. Yeah, that being said, um, let's see. Talking about Arena just a little bit, um, wasn't initially supposed to be this huge fantasy world. I don't know if you saw the same videos I did or read the same stuff that I did, but Arena was originally supposed to be just like a gladiator fighting game. 
um, where you would essentially kind of go from town to town with your troop of gladiators, essentially just fight. It would be, you know, just um, simulating combat. But as they were building the game, it kind of, they, they built more and more towns and they built in more and more quests and stuff like that. And it became this full-fledged fantasy game. And one of the creators of Arena was like, okay, this game's getting a little bit beyond um, just the name Arena, right? Because you're not in an Arena, you're in a huge world. Um, so they stuck the name Elder Scrolls on it just as kind of like a vague placeholder in case, you know, something kind of comes of this. And sure enough, it does. So uh, I think that's kind of an interesting fun fact is like it was originally planned to be this just kind of brawler style game and it kind of turned into a, a huge franchise, fantasy franchise, kind of by accident. Yeah, I think I remember them uh, one of the docs saying that the side quests were more fun than the actual main quest of just going around fighting in, in different arenas and that's kind of why they decided to switch it up. Right, and they kept the name Arena because they had all their like printed materials and stuff already. Right. And they, didn't, they, they yeah. couldn't, yeah, they couldn't go back and redo all that. They just so. retconned uh, the reason why it was called Arena. Yep, exactly. So, looking at these games as a whole, I'm sure some of you probably played Skyrim, Oblivion. Hopefully, some of you are old enough like us to play Morrowind. Um, but these games are very much, I guess, a modern setting for fantasy that I think a lot of people are familiar with. I think uh, a lot of people's when they say fantasy video games, one of the first things they're probably gonna think about is the Elder Scrolls. With this series, obviously it's a huge, huge world. Uh, it's a lot bigger than I thought it was. You know, in our initial research for doing this game, I didn't realize how much world building there was. Um, and I think it's really cool. Like I, I've really enjoyed doing the research for this one because it's there's just so many cool things here um, and we're kind of excited to kind of start talking about them. So. Unless you got any other segues, Jeremy, I will jump into like how this world was created. Uh, I think the only other thing to mention that is how how massive Daggerfall itself was. Yes. Uh, so it was a it's a giant, pre, um, not pre-generated, um, procedurally generated map over the entire continent of Tamriel, and it had yet to be uh, surpassed in scale until No Man's Sky came out. Yeah, which, which is if you if you what's that twenty thirty year or twenty twenty five years of of time frame in between those two games coming out. Yeah, that, that is insane. Uh, and just like, yeah, I was playing it literally today and I got out of the first dungeon and you're in this like snowy mountain area and you're like, oh, this is pretty cool. And then you look at your map and it's just like, it's daunting. Even even in 2022, it's really daunting. So uh, yeah, Daggerfall is historically known as one of the largest uh, game worlds ever. And obviously with uh, Oblivion and Skyrim, they're pretty decently sized. It's not anything to shake a stick at, but it's nowhere near as, as large as Daggerfall for sure. So time for the mythology and the world building. So this is where it kind of divulges into um, Tolkien territory, I guess you could say. Yeah. My eyes are just going to glaze over through this, yes. so just keep going. All right, and I'm going to try to break this down as easily as I could. I tried typing it down and copying some stuff down, and then I actually had to like physically write this down to make sense of it. Ooh, gross. I know. So there is uh, the creation of everything the universe that we're in it begins with this with chaos and it, there's just there's nothing in the pre-universe and from this sort of primordial nothingness there are two forces um that kind of come out of the void forces of order and chaos and these forces are called anu and padme yes padme 
I don't know, man. Like I'm reading this whole thing, and it's like Anu and Is it Padme. Actually, Padme. It's I, P- I, know, it, I can remember the pronunciation. Yeah, again. it's P O D L M A Y. Padme. They, yep. So there's these two orders. Okay. So out of this, out of this nothingness, you get order, which is represented by Anu, and you get chaos, which is re- represented by Padme. What they do is this general idea of order and chaos comes their own souls. They become sort of sentient and they birth their own souls. Anu-El and Sithis. So Anu-El is the spirit of Anu and Sithis. Doesn't keep with the name, but is the um, the spirit or soul of Padme. So I think that's kind of interesting because it kind of sounds like Padme and she gives birth to her own self, which is Sith. Hmm. Anyway... <laughs> So, what happens? Do you think Skywalker was a big. Uh, I, <laughs> I don't know. George Lucas. <laughs> I don't know, man. You gotta you gotta read between the lines for yourselves, man. It's just um, the Illuminati controlling everything. So what essentially happens is Anu and Padme, they kind of diverge into each other, and because of the um, pressure of chaos and the pressure of order, um, what is born is the universe called Arbus. A-U-R-B-I-S, Orbis. And that is essentially the universe. So out of order and chaos comes the universe Orbis. Um, within Orbis, so you have Mundus, which is the, um, I guess you would call that the mortal plane of existence, where you have the planets and you have, you know, the timeline and stuff like that. You have Oblivion, which of course is really important for the Oblivion game, which we'll talk about a few episodes down the road. Um, you have Aetherius, which is the like immortal, the plane of the gods. So if you remember, um, I believe, what is it? Sovngarde in Skyrim, where it's yes. like that. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a part. Bahal, basically. Well, that, that part of Aetherius is. Aetherius is essentially the immortal plane. And then another part of Arbus is the void, which as you can imagine, there's not a whole lot going on there. So after Arbus is created, um, things begin to form out of the void. The first things that kind of come out of this void are Auriel and Lorcan. Um, they are essentially souls birthed out of Anuel and Sithis. Okay, so let's recap what I just said over the last few minutes. Order and chaos, Anu and Padme, they diverge together um, and they create the universe. But they also create their own souls of Anuel and Sithis. Anuel and Sithis create Aruel and Lorcan. Okay, we're still on the same page. So. These uh, Arul, the essential granddaughter spirit of the original idea of order, creates what we consider time. With time being a thing within the universe um, that essentially generates chaos and it generates the locomotion of the universe. And out of that, um, what are called et adas, et apostrophe ada. They essentially are what we would consider like the high primordial spirits. So they're essentially like the, I, I don't know, call them necessarily proto-gods, but that's essentially what they kind of become is et ada as the original spirits. Okay. Still with me, everybody? No. The, so, yes, these gods, Anu and Padme, they create their own spirit and they, out of all of this chaos, they create the universe. And within this, they also create the first order of gods. The et ada is what they're called. Okay. So this is where um, a lot of the creative forces kind of come into play. What happens is Anu and Padme are constantly struggling with each other. Again, it's order and chaos, right? 
So they create a number of different planes, like I just mentioned. They create Mundus, which is the universe. Uh, not the universe, it's the plane of existence that, you know, the orcs and the elves are all on. It also creates Oblivion, it creates Aetherius and the Void. But not all of the planes of existence were, like, stable or content. Um, there was one at Ada, one primal spirit called Lorcan, who was created by the um, spirit of Sithis, which again is the primordial being of um, Padme. And what Lorcan wants to do is he goes to the other um, at Ada and he kind of says, you know what, I kind of want to create my own thing. Will you guys help me? And they say, sure. Some of them say, sure, why not? So what happens is Lorcan either tricks or convinces some of the other gods to create Mundus, which is the plane of existence that you are familiar with. It's the normal, um, the planets and stuff like that, Tamriel, it's all that stuff. And because of the effort it takes to create Mundus, a lot of the gods and stuff lose their power. So what Lorcan does is he creates the mortal plane. They become what is known as the Aedra. So the people that were creating Mundus become the Aedra, while some of the other primal spirits, the Edada, um, become the Daedra. They decide not to help them out, and they, they develop their own plane of existence called Oblivion. So you kind of see here, so let's kind of let's take a step back here. So these gods are all kind of gathering together, and they're kind of getting a little bored, they're getting a little discontent, and Lorcan says to them, hey, let's create our own thing where we can kind of put our own energies into, and a bunch of the gods agree, and they do, and they create this universe, this, this plane of existence. But some of the gods disagree, and they create their own stuff, where they're not putting in as much energy um, and kind of, you know, essentially killing themselves in a way. But what happens is you get the normal plane of existence, Mundus, and then you get Daedra. And if you've played Oblivion, you know what a Daedra is. It's this other plane of existence. If you remember Oblivion... They open the gates between the two realities, essentially. So as I was just saying, the Aedra gods essentially create create the mortal plane. But what happens is they realize that they're giving up parts of their being and they're essentially drained to a lower status. But the creation of Daedra, uh, sorry, the creation of the other plane of existence that the Daedra are responsible for doesn't drain them as much. So that's why you sort of see how... If you're familiar with Oblivion, I'm sure you remember going into the Oblivion Gates, how everything just looks kind of twisted, but somewhat similar. It's because, just imagine as if God had a plan for what they wanted uh, Earth to look like, but, you know, Lucifer had his planet and he did whatever he wanted with it. It's kind of like that. It's kind of evolved on its own terms, depending on, like, the background there. So, a lot of the gods departed the mortal plane of Mundus before it was complete. Uh, chief among these was Magnus, the architect of Lorcan's plan. So, Magnus is really important because he's essentially the creator of magic in the world of Elder Scrolls. He's more or less the one that bestows the magical ability um, within Mundus. So, his departure actually opens a hole in the barrier between the planes of existence, allowing magic to kind of come into the mortal plane of Mundus. Not all of the gods decide to leave Mundus. They're not, they don't decide to leave our plane of existence. But what actually happens is those gods that decide to stay become the eight divines. Now are you kind of catching up with it, Jeremy? You remember those names? So a lot of the um, these gods that decide to stay in Mundus, they become the, the gods and patrons of the inhabitants of this realm of existence. So yeah, we have the eight divines that are essentially staying to kind of protect and be patrons of Mundus. 
And during this whole process, Lorcan's heart is removed and made into a magical stone, which does actually have some plot points in different games. So looking at all of the other details here, towards... And this is what's considered the Dawn Era. So there's different eras within the Elder Scrolls, and we're going to talk about those in a few minutes. But as with any creation story, um, since these are gods of infinite power and capabilities, any time where there's like a body part removed, it's larger than you know our own body part and stuff like that. So what essentially happens at the end of this era, Lorcan is kind of bound to his creation, um, and his heart is ripped out and cast down into Tamriel, which is the main continent that all the games take place on. And his heart allegedly becomes Vardenfell, which is the Red Mountain Volcano, which is the home of the Dark Elves. Um, and it's there where his kind of heart remains dormant. After all the other gods sort of leave the planet, um, the, main, the main planet of uh, Nern, what happens is time kind of allows things to sort of stabilize. And that's where you start to see some of the earlier races and stuff like that. Okay. While well, you're recapping that, did you find that same information potentially? Um, Lorikan was using the idea of creation to trick the other gods into being less powerful. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I kind of ran across when I was doing this. Is like it depends on what source you look at within right. the game. So that's the biggest thing. What What's ruse. so jumping back to the danger really quick? Um, as I kind of mentioned before, the some of the Et Ada, which are like the main primal gods, they didn't want to give up their spirit, and they wanted to kind of focus more on oblivion which was the other realm of existence they didn't really care about the mortal plane so they really put a lot of their effort into oblivion and the other daedric realms which would become so to break everything down here let's just kind of do this so if you're if you're really confused you can just kind of focus on this part so to recap everything there are two forces at the beginning of everything order and chaos out of that order and chaos they essentially birth themselves and because of their relationship the there's different things that are kind of born from that including the different realms of existence um, and also out of this comes different gods the et ada the et ada are the primal forces that kind of dictate a lot of things and some of the et ada decide to give up some of their power to create the mortal plane of existence the other ones that did not do that become the daedra they kind of focus more on oblivion the um et ada who did actually give their force to create the world um, became the Aedra. So the Aedra versus the Daedra, right? So that's where you can kind of see the name coming here. And the Aedra that did actually contribute to the creation of the mortal plane of existence, Mundus, became the Eight Divine or Nine Divine, depending on what time of the story that you're kind of talking about. But just as a recap, for those people that have played the game, here are those Eight or Nine Divine. There's Akatosh, who is the uh, dragon god of time and chief god of the pantheon. So you can kind of think of the eight divine, the nine divine as kind of like the, the Olympians. But Akatosh, yes, the dragon god. You have Arke, who is the god of cycle of life and death, mortals, burials, funeral rites. There's Debello, the goddess of beauty and love. Julianos is the god of wisdom and logic. Uh, Kanerith, who is the goddess of air, wind, sky, and the elements. Mara is the goddess of love. If you ever did any of the marriage side quests in Skyrim, you did some of the quests of Mara. Um, Stendar is the god of compassion, mercy, justice, charity, luck, righteous rule, and merciful forbearance. Talos is the hero god of mankind. He is the conqueror god. He's kind of like the Thor. Talos is the Thor. And then there's Zenithar, who's the god of work and commerce and also considered a traitor god. So Akatosh, Arke, Dibella, Julianos, Kinnereth, Mara, Stendar, Talos, Zenithar, 
um, are the the nine divine. I believe it is Talos who's the one that's kind of iffy because some people don't consider that Talos is a, actually a true nine divine, that it's called the eight and one. But if you've played through Skyrim, you've seen different statues to the nine divine or the eight divine. In terms of your interactions within the games, you're typically interacting with the eight divines who again are the gods that decided to help out and create this plane of existence. Whew, that is a lot of talking, man. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> um, See, didn't uh, didn't so they actually uh, stayed in Mundus and left, but left the planet, and they are the reasons the other planets are in the sky. Correct. Correct. So that also kind of even mirrors how some of the ancient civilizations of Earth also looked at some of the foreign celestial bodies as as deities. Right, and I believe that the the moon is like the body of Lork Lorcar's corpse. Um, sorry, Lorcan's corpse. So, yes. like the planets that plays of... very heavily into the Khajiit culture. Yep. So the planets of Sakuda and Masur, um, which orbit the planet of Nern, um, they are Lorcan's corpse. So yeah, you do see this a lot of times, and like it's interesting that they 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 built this mythology, you know, which is very unique in itself, but is very like I can see you know connections with ancient like Mesopotamians and Egyptians and stuff like that. So it's really. Really cool. Obviously, there's a lot more to this, of course, um, but this is really the extent of what we can do within a podcast's kind of timeline here. Yeah, not really a visual medium, so not conducive. Yeah, to, uh, it, it really something is this, this uh, in depth. And my research is really kind of a combination of watching videos on YouTube, um, going on different wikis and stuff like that for all of this information. So, you're um, not playing through the games and reading all the books. No, unfortunately, I know. Unfortunately, I'm not. But um, I guess the biggest thing to kind of remember when looking at the gods, what's really important is the eight divines, the nine divines, and I guess the Daedra, which do kind of come up quite a few times, especially in the um, more modern Elder Scrolls games. So unless you had anything else to say about the mythology and world building? Uh, I guess I have one question, and maybe this is just kind of a personal opinion. So are the Daedra technically what you would consider evil, or are they just kind of... That's made good, up of of chaotic energy you know what i mean if like, yeah i think they're more akin to chaos i don't think if they're they're not necessarily it's not a good it's not necessarily a good versus evil but more like what their their essence causes them to maybe hurt your standard folk more than the other the aedra would so yeah with the daedra i think they're just more akin to the natural tendencies of chaos and darker side of things it's like i don't know it's like being on earth and then your neighbor is kind of closer to the sun so they're naturally going to have a different disposition kind of think of it like that the daedra who are on a different plane of existence they're to themselves aren't going to seem evil but maybe to us they would and there's instead of the the eight divines or nine divines like we have of the aedra the daedra have the daedric princes like um i'm sure you know merus dagon mm-hmm. uh, Mol- molag ball um Sheo Garath, I mean, all the amazing, um, fun gods that you kind of interact with sometimes in the Elder Scrolls games are all Daedric princes. So the Daedra or Daedroth, um, when looking at defining like, okay, are they on the same level as the eight divine or nine divine? Uh, it's really hard to say. There's not a huge consensus on if they're on the same level as Akatosh or um, Debella or anybody else. But my general understanding is that they're pretty powerful, you know, a lot of these these creatures or princes are pretty well feared within um, Tamriel, like Marius Dagon. There's Molag Ball. There's 
Um, Shio Gorath has a bunch of different quest lines and stuff like that. So I, I don't think they're necessarily on the same level as the Eight Divine because, of course, the the Divine Aedra, they gave up their power to kind of create the, the mortal plane of existence. But I'm essentially guessing that the Daedra had to do a very similar thing. And as maybe the like high ranking demons <sighs> in like the like the Christian myth. Yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. It's not so like is, not not just your run of the mill like crossroads demon, but something like a a Baal or Right a, and you know, that kind of thing. Right. And I think with uh, obviously, as the plot goes, they're they're always thwarted, right? They're always banished or whatever else to their realm again. So maybe they aren't necessarily as powerful. And of course, in the ending of Oblivion, that's when the what's the name of the um, Sean Bean character in Oblivion? God, what's his name? Uriel Septim's uh, like bastard son. Yeah, the the pr- um, the prince, right? He turns into Akatosh and he fights in in the Imperial City. He fights. Was it um, Mayor Stagon and yeah. wins? So. Uh, it, it kind of could be a chess match or a tug of war, but I think typically the Aedra kind of went out. I don't know if it's because they have the power of good on their side or what it is, but um, that's a lot of conversations about uh, gods and stuff like that. But if you're familiar with the game, looking at other Daedra, like the Atronox, where it's like the, the flame summons and the frost summons, that's all um, Daedric stuff. So like uh, Neuromancers and Conjurers, they're able to kind of conjure lesser daedra so it's kind of a cool thing the more you think about it because when you're playing the game it's one thing but when you actually look at like how you're able to do that and how it's crossing this plane of existence that's pretty cool to think about his name is martin martin yes martin Martin septim what where's the necklace yeah so yes martin who turns into akatosh and fights uh dagon not to be confused with dagon from the cthulhu mythos but here we are Oh, we have friends, I swear. Uh, okay, so looking at the... We don't. Um, but the next step here, that's that's really the, all the mythology and origins. Apologies that it's a little scatterbrained, but as you can imagine, there's a lot to kind of digest with this. Um, it's really cool, I think, overall. Like I said, with the idea of the convergence of the Daedra and the Aedra with our realm of existence and their realm of existence, it is kind of a cool concept. But unless there's any further things to talk about, I can jump into the eras really briefly. I'm not going to belabor the point here. No, go for it. All right, cool. So we have the Dawn Era. This is really what I was just talking about. This is the origin of everything. So the Dawn Era is an era in which time began and the world was created. It was a time of chaos and magic where gods walked in Nurn, which is the planet. Uh, Elven history. um, And what's interesting about the elves is they sort of trace their ancestries to the first mortal beings. So the uh, the elves essentially have a chip on their shoulder, especially the high elves, thinking that they are the supreme beings because they're the first people to kind of come of the world. Um, so elven history begins after the cosmos stabilizes when Magnus, who I mentioned before, sort of leaves Nern and kind of breaks that wall between magic. Um, and Lorcan is condemned for the creation of the mortal plane. Uh, it begins with the emergence of Anu and Padme and ends with the convention. Okay, so that's the first era. That is the Dawn Era. Then there is the Merithic Era. Uh, sorry, Merithic. Merithic. So the Merithic Era is the era that begins when a linear timeline can be discerned. This era begins in ME 2500. So instead of having BC or 80, they have ME. So the earliest date to be recorded by King Harold Scribe and goes backwards to 1E, which is the first year of the first era. So some notable events that happen in the Merithic Era include the construction of the Adamantine Tower in... 
2500 ME, the exodus of the Aldemeri people from the ancestral homelands of the Aldemeris, and the settling of the vast coasts of Tamriel, and the later the exodus of the Atmorans from the continent of Atmora, the ancestors of the Nords, who begin settling the northern coasts of Tamriel. So Atmora is essentially kind of like the Iceland to Tamriel. It's in like the northern reaches. Uh, the era ends with the founding of the Camoran dynasty in Valinwood. And Valinwood is the land of the Wood Elves, correct? Correct. All right, I'm still on a roll. All right, first era. So after uh, that era is the first era, even though it's the third in the timeline. The first era is a very long era that lasts for about 3,000 years and is marked by a visible shift in the power between the elven and human races. So in the last era, you kind of see the elves kind of being the prominent one, but because of the divergence of populations, um, humans are starting to establish themselves kind of all throughout um, the planet. So with the success of the Elysian Rebellion and shattering of the Aeliot Empire, this, the first era begins when Remen Cyrodiil III, so there's the name of the imperial capital area, I believe, mm. uh, and his heir, Juliac, are assassinated, ending the Remen line of Cyrodiilic emperors, and the Seise Potente Versude Shai takes the throne. Easy to say, kids. I didn't have to try that four times. The most notable events of the first era include the formation of the first Orsinium, which is the uh, essentially the kingdom of the orcs, I believe. Yes. Uh, the, the first kingdom of Skyrim, the first empire of the Nords, uh, and the first empire of man led by St. Alicia. So this is really when you start to see, to kind of recap the first era, is when you start to see the establishment of certain political entities, uh, the races kind of establishing themselves. So that's the first era. So the second era lasts for about 900 years, beginning with the death of the Remen uh, dynasty at the hands of Morang Tong, uh, and ending with Tiber Symptoms harnessing of the Numidium and bringing peace to Tamriel. We're going to talk about the Numidium once we get to Daggerfall. Uh, the more notable events of the Second Era include the assassination of that person, Potente Versidue Shae, and his later son, Savrian Shorak, and all his heirs, ending the Second Empire of Men and causing the Interregum. This period was also marked by the Three Banners War between the Ebonheart Pact, Daggerfall Covenant, and the First Aldemeri Dominion over the Ruby Throne, which, if you are familiar with the Elder Scrolls Online, is basically the major factions in that game. So this is actually when the second era is when Elder Scrolls Online takes place. So after the Aldemeri Dominion and Daggerfall Covenant and Ebonheart Pact are fighting for the Ruby Throne, the Elven Necromancer... Um, Manny Marco ruled the Empire and worked with a Daedric Prince, Molag Ball, who wishes to drag the mortal plane into oblivion, Cold Harbor. It's interesting to see this um, interaction between the, the Mundus, the normal plane of existence, and um, the other planes of existence, including oblivion. So that's the second era. And again, this is around the time of uh, Elder Scrolls Online. Okay, two more to go. Third Era. The Third Era was a rather short era that only lasted about 433 years, and this is where the first four Elder Scrolls games takes place. So the Third Era is where um, Arena takes place, Daggerfall takes place, Morrowind takes place, and Oblivion takes place. So this is the era where Tiber Septim, um, so if you've played the games before, you know the name Tiber Septim, he unites all of Tamriel under the banner of the Empire, and the Septim Dynasty begins. Um, since the beginning of the Third Empire of Men, there have been many civil wars and revolts against the Empire's rule. Notable events of the Third Era include the Neverine's victory over Dagoth Ur and the Akulakan, which is, I believe, what happens during Oblivion. Sorry, what happens during Morrowind. Um, the second eruption at Red Mountain and the assassination of Uriel Septim VII, which is the beginning of Oblivion. 
which does, of course, lead to the Oblivion Crisis. Uh, Martin Septim sacrifices himself. Um, we talked about that before. He becomes the avatar of Akatosh um, and sacrifices him during the Oblivion Crisis, which kind of marks the end of the Septim bloodline and also the end of the Third Era. So all of the events that we just mentioned, uh, the Neverine, which is the um, the name of the main character in uh, Morrowind, um, you see the events of Oblivion take place. And as um, the end of Oblivion kind of leads to the fourth era, which I'll talk about right now. So the fourth era begins once uh, Martin dies, the Septim bloodline it kind of shrivels up and it marks the rise of the Thalmor. So if you played Skyrim, you're pretty familiar with the Thalmor uh, and the establishment and rise of the third Aldmeri Dominion, as well as the great war within the third empire. The last known year of the fourth era is 4E201, the year in which the dragon crisis occurs and the last dragonborn rose to combat the world eater Alduin. So this is where you see Skyrim, essentially, right? So I, I knew this playing Skyrim that it did take place a couple hundred years after um, Oblivion and Morrowind. Uh, the first four Elder Scrolls game takes place in a period of about 400 or so years. And then about 400 years after that era is the era of Skyrim. So that, again, is just a really brief summary. There's a lot of stuff in there that we're probably going to flush out as we talk about these individual games. But um, a lot of the stuff that we're going to be talking about today is really going to be centered in that third era period. So anything else to say before we kind of jump into the first game in this collection, which is Arena, Jeremy? Uh, yeah, are we going to talk about how the races settled the uh, Tamarind? Oh, yeah, we should talk about the races and the... Um, yeah, let's we talk, should. Let's talk about races. Let's t you know, let's talk about race. Not enough people do that enough. So before any of the elves or humans came to Tamriel, there were two of the playable races that we know that are native to Tamriel. You have the Khajiit and the Argonians. The Khajiit are a cat-like folk. Uh, interesting enough, were you aware of this read? But what type of Khajiit you are is based on the lunar cycle of the moons at the time of your birth. Yeah, I, I was listening to one of the Elder Scrolls podcasts, and they were talking about how the Khajiit have like a ruler depending on the cycle of the moon. Everything's related to the moon, which is really cool. And they think that everyone's favorite commodity in Morrowind, moon sugar, is like the essence of the actual moon. It, it's so it's so cool. Right. So you could be born from a tiny little ocelot to an actual bipedal, you know, normal humanoid-looking Khajiit that everyone knows and loves today. Mm -hmm. Just an interesting tidbit. And then the Argonians um, are from the Black Marsh area. They were made by the Hist, which basically took the reptiles of the area and converted them into their bipedal humanoid figures. Were the Hist like a, a natural force? Were they wizards? What, what are the Hist? Uh, Hist are sentient trees. So they would also kind of technically be considered a race native to uh, Tamriel. So they're swamp ants is what you're saying. Essentially, yeah. Um, and then, uh, like, the Histar basically use the Argonians to kind of protect them. And their society and religion is basically purely formed around the Hist. Got it. So from there, the only other races, there is a... I forgot what they're called, but it's like a Sasquatch race and a fox-like race that's believed to be extinct, but... And then things like goblins, ogres, that the sort of beastmen, if you will. So the first non-native races known to uh, settle Tamriel, as you mentioned before, were the elves. They first settled in the they first settled in the Somerset Isles, 
From there, they began to slowly kind of expand the areas around. They went to Valenwood, which would eventually become the High Elves, and then Cyrodiil, which would be the Aeliads. And they ruled Cyrodiil for a while until there was a human slave uprising, which kind of overthrew and just destroyed their civilization, and any remaining one of the Aeliads would have went back and just kind of dissolved into the other elven races. And that's why when you're playing Oblivion, all those Aeliad ruins are essentially from those people. So this would be around the time of the first era. The first age. Yep, correct. Cool. So all of those other elves that left were kind of a part of that initial Aldmer organization or, or faction. So that ex expansion was kind of chill with them. However, when what would become the Dark Elves left from Morrowind, they left with the prophet Veloth. And that was against the wishes of the other Aldmer. And one in particular, one of the original spirits, Trinimac, took some of his followers out to basically hunt them down and stop them. Um, while this was happening, Veloth was eaten and corrupted by a Daedric prince known as Bel Beothan. So I'm not sure if he was actually physically eaten or if that was just kind of being poetic. But he was then corrupted and became Malakath whose original followers then become the orc race of the Elder Scrolls. Oh. So the well, orcs are actually corrupted elves, kind of very very Tolkien-esque with the Urukai. Yeah, very much so. When the soon-to-be dark elves go to Morrowind, they meet the Dwemer, and they're basically already there. So there is a little kind of either false information or not well-cited uh, sources, because there's also currently snow elves up in Skyrim. My personal theory is that at some point, instead of settling Somerset Isles, the elves that were coming from wherever they were before, um, if you believe that their homeland of Aldmeris was actually in Atlantis and sunk into the ocean, or if they just came from somewhere else, but they at some point either diverged off and settled those areas and were never a part of that original uh, settlement in Somerset Isle, or they may also just be native elves to Tamriel. There's not really any good sources there. Um, the first humans to then settle the area would be the Needs. They were a very primitive being, a uh, very primitive race. They were said to be pre-literate, so I'm not sure how they passed through the ocean being pre-literate, but they began to settle in High Rock, uh, Skyrim, Cyrodiil, and Morrowind, and they were generally persecuted, especially by the elves, the Aelids, enslaved essentially any of them that came to Cyrodiil, until the Atmorans came. So they would be the human race from the, the north, sort of what we would think of as, air quotes, Vikings, right? And initially they had an alliance with the Snow Elves already living in Skyrim. However, the, sky, or the Snow Elves became afraid of them because of how fast they began to populate that area. And the Elves betrayed the Atmorans, sacking their city of Sarathal. They slaughtered everyone in the city in an event that would be known as the Night of Tears. The only survivors of the Night of Tears, Ysigrimir and his sons Yengothal and Yiglar, returned to Atmora, where they would gather an army known as the 500 Companions, returning to defeat the Snow Elves, driving them underground where they would be enslaved by the Dwemer. Wait, isn't the aren't, isn't the Snow Elves, isn't that the... Um, the Falmor, yes, they uh -huh. become the Falmor. So they they are enslaved by the Dwemer until the Dwemer disappear. And they and just, I'm stay, not sure if you and they just stand underground because they're like blind and everything, right? 
Yes, yeah. Well, essentially, their civilization was shattered into nothing, so... And they all become Gollum, essentially. Essentially, yes. Um, ah. But yes, and then the when the Dwemer just disappear, they basically just keep hanging out underground. Okay. So, once the Atmorans defeat the the snow elves they will continue to settle through tamriel but essentially they 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 just kind of integrated and and regionally kind of and culturally just kind of came into their own yep social cultures and standards so obviously the ones that stayed in skyrim the atmorans and the needs kind of just became the nords in cyrodiil the atmorans were then also enslaved and the two need and that Morn enslaved groups would eventually break their their bonds of slavery and become the Imperials. High Rock, the Atmoran needs and the Aldmer population, that culture just kind of blurred into one race of people, the Bretons. And the only ones that were not of that initial stock would be the Red Guards, who fled their homeland of Yakuta, which was an island that was actually sinking into the sea. Um, and they landed off the coast of Tamriel on an island called Hearn, and they slowly began to move inward into Hammerfell and just kind of have been a very secluded culture. They began to trade a little bit with some of the other, um, I believe it was in High Rock, but they've always been just kind of more recluse until they became under the the might of the Empire. Right, and going back to what you said about the Bretons, I didn't know this until like um, I started doing research for this, is that the Bretons were, they're kind of like Aragon, uh, Aragorn in uh, Lord of the Rings, because he's kind of like partially elf. Yeah, half elf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're kind of like the traditional half. I didn't know that. I always yeah, thought I they were just either. humans. Yeah. It, it explains their, like, that they're humans with a natural affinity towards magic and a natural resistance to yep. it. Because in a lot of fantasy, elves are always naturally resistant to magic and stuff like that. So, so yeah, the Bretons are essentially the half elves of this uh, like, series. Ish. I would say it's it's probably closer to like how every white person is one sixteenth Cherokee. <laughs> I suppose. I suppose. Yeah, on my mom's side. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so is that? Did you cover all of them then? Uh, yeah, basically the only ones I didn't go into depth with was the disappearance of the Dwemer, but I think that's probably something we'll want to cover more in depth on a, a later episode. Right. Because that's that'll probably be maybe like a Morrowind episode because that's heavily heavily to do with the Dark Elves. Right, and um, I don't want to get too much into it, but my assumption is that the Dwemer are kind of like dwarves. Um, they are actually elves. Okay, okay. Yeah, they they are the dwarves of the Elder Scrolls, but they are still an elven race. They're just like an underground, like, techie steampunk elf, if steampunk you will. Steampunk elf. Sounds good. So let's. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna recap this real quickly because uh, Jeremy did a great job with the history here. But um, if you're ever playing any of these Elder Scrolls games, you have the option of choosing what is it? Nine different races, ten different races, um, and just kind of break it all down. Looking at the map of Tamriel, in the middle you have Cyrodiil, which is home of the Imperials. To the south of that you have Elsewhere, which is the home of the Khajiit. Uh, to the west of elsewhere, you have Valenwood, which is the home of the Wood Elves or the Bosmer. Uh, to the east of elsewhere, you have Black Marsh, which is the home of the Hist and the Argonians. To the north of the Black Marsh, you have Morrowind um, or Vardenfell, which is the home of 
Um, actually, no, Morrowind's like the actual land. Vardenfell's the island of Morrowind, yes. correct? Okay. Which is the home of the Dark Elves or the Dunmer. Um, to the northwest of Morrowind, you have this, you have Skyrim, which is home of the Nords. Um, the orcs, as you kind of mentioned, um, they live southwest of Skyrim in Hammerfell. They're kind of scattered all throughout the kingdom, though. Yeah, uh, they're very tribal and really scattered. For a while, they had their city. Uh, you mentioned it earlier. Orsinium. Orsinium, yeah. But I believe that ends up falling, and they kind of scatter a little bit more, if I remember correctly. Yep. So in Hammerfell is the orcs, largely, uh, and of course the Red Guards. And to the north of Hammerfell, you have High Rock, which is the home of the Bretons. And then in the southwestern portion of Tamriel, on an island with boats and jet skis, you have the High Elves. And what's interesting, I didn't really kind of make the correlation until I did this research, of course, is that all of the elves have the uh, prefix, suffix of uh, mer. Mer. Right. Mer. Merka. So the high elves are called the Altmer, right? Altmer. Mm-hmm. Um, the Dunmer, which is the dark elves. And then you have the Bosmer. So all of those elven names end with mer. So I think that's kind of an interesting fact that all are kind of diverged into their own categories there. Um, But talking about races, of course, is a very fun and non-controversial subject, but trying to be as fun as we can. Whenever you're making a character in any of the Elder Scrolls games, what three races do you typically choose? Khajiit. Khajiit for one. Okay, what are the other two? Argonian. Okay. I don't know. Those are usually my two go-tos, like if I'm playing... My typical, like, stealthy sneak guy. Okay. Um, I guess probably Nord because of Skyrim. Yeah, I mean, my major character, of course, like, because you want to play along the storyline of Skyrim, which is largely based on the Nordic kingdoms versus the Imperial presence and stuff like that. Um, for me, it was always, yeah, it was really dependent largely on which game I was playing, but I kind of always find myself making either a Dark Elf um nord or breton i always always had affinity for bretons for some reason um into the bretons and that is i believe where the projection for elder scrolls 6 is going to take place i i yeah it's either hammerfell or high rock my money honestly like this is probably too far of a shot but my idea for elder scrolls 6 is why it's taking so long is it's going to be every continent or every every province every province yes bring it back to the uh um, arena and Daggerfall? That'd be awesome. Well, I mean, Elder Scrolls Online kind of does it anyway already. Right. You can travel to a lot of these different locations and even within uh, Skyrim, you can travel back to Solstheim, which is uh, one of the northern islands above Vardenfell. So, and elsewhere. They have they have elsewhere in Elder Scrolls Online and I'm sure some of these other places too. Yeah. Somerset Isles, I know you can go to as well. So like, yeah, why not make it such That'd a massive... Awesome. It's going to be 300 gigabytes. Gigs. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be 300... It's going to be your entire hard drive anyway, so who cares? 17 Blu-ray discs. <sighs> yes, I hope so. 85 CDs. Uh, I think all the races are pretty cool on their own merit. Um, I always I like, had a hard time playing elves, especially in Oblivion, just because they look so freaking goofy. Well, yeah, we don't talk about... <laughs> I think the only race in Oblivion that looks somewhat decent is the orcs. Yeah. And they look, and they look like Shrek. They, they all look, look like, like Shrek. I mean, all, I mean, they all look like they're bobbleheads. They all look, yeah. you know, really stupid, but... That's neither here nor there. We're, we're of course, going to talk about that as we get into Oblivion. But since it's been about an hour of us talking about background, maybe we should actually kind of jump into the games themselves, unless we have any other comments about 
Um, and of course, looking at the map of Tamriel, um, all of these places, they have very different um, climate and geography. Cyrodiil, which is the, the place that the game Oblivion takes place, is a really idyllic European, you know, farms and mountains and pretty waterways, rivers, stuff like that. Morrowind, which I think uh, is so unique in a lot of ways because of its geography we'll talk i'm not gonna i'm not gonna talk about it today but all of these different places they have similar um geography in some regards but a lot of them have their own very unique characteristics like hammerfell is largely very deserty somerset isles is apparently very tropical not tropical but very beautiful maybe it is tropical valenwood is as you can imagine with the name very very wooded uh what elsewhere is like jungly right so it is like a sandy desert and half kind of jungly. Yep. Okay. And Black There's Marsh says faction lines between the Khajiit based on their geography. Oh. And Black Marsh is Black Marsh is I'm guessing pretty swampy. Uh, yeah, it's like it's you after you've been working for like ten hours. Yeah. Okay. And Skyrim, of course, you guys know what Skyrim is. It's pretty mountainous. Uh, High Rock. I don't know much about High Rock. Is that more like uh, I'm thinking like France, Spain, kind of. Because it's, it's pretty far northern, so I'm guessing it would be pretty uh, different depending on... Because Daggerfall... Yeah, I don't know. Because that's where Daggerfall is. So we're going to talk about Daggerfall in a few minutes here. But Daggerfall is actually kind of a... It's a city uh, in the south of High Rock. Um, and that's kind of an important city for the ongoing political conflict that I'm going to talk about. It looks kind of similar to Cyrodiil. Very, okay. I would say diverse. A very diverse... Um, you know, biomes. Yeah. Okay. So. All right. So that is the, uh, yeah, that's the world of Tamriel, which is the main, there's other continents, but they don't really, you don't play there. You don't really do much with them. It's just kind of like, it's kind of like in uh, game of Thrones where you have Wessos, uh, sorry, Westeros and then Essos, um, and how Essos is there, but there's not a ton of, I mean, there's some of the stuff going it's on, there, but, but no one cares. Right. And then that's basically how we're going to kind of view this. We're going to really, base a lot of our stuff moving forward based upon these places um, in Tamriel. And that's where the majority of this games, these games take place. So that being said, are you ready to start with Arena, my good boy? Oh, I'm ready to roll. All right, I'll let Jeremy tell us a bit about Elder Scrolls 1. Arena came out in March of 1994. Go ahead, Jeremy. Elder Scrolls Arena takes place in the 389th year of the Third Age in Tamriel, a land so war-torn the citizens have dubbed it the Arena. The ruler, Emperor Uriel Septim VII, has been betrayed by his advisor and Imperial battle mage, Yegar Tharn. Using a magical artifact known as the Staff of Chaos, Yegar has banished the Emperor into a foreign dimension. Now Yegar sits upon the throne of the Imperial Palace, magically disguised as the Emperor with a retinue of demonic forces enchanted to appear as Imperial guards. The only witness is Yegar's apprentice, Rhea Silmain, who has been killed before she can inform the Elder Council of Yegar's treachery. Fortunately, Rhea's magic allows her to take an incorporeal form. Rhea reaches out to an unlikely champion deep in the bowels of the Imperial Dungeon. A prisoner is contacted by a magical visage. Rhea tasks the champion with collecting the pieces of the staff which have been broken and scattered across Tamriel. The champion escapes the dungeon with Rhea's aid through a magical portal. Far away from the Imperial City, the champion is safe to recuperate. Rhea appears again in the champion's dreams, telling him where the staff pieces can be found. The hero begins their search in the province of Hammerfall. Finally, in the depths of 
Fang Lair, the first staff piece is found. An image of Jaegar appears to the champion, saying, Give up the staff, and your death will be painless. When the champion declines the offer, demons appear and attack the champion. With the demons slain, the champion is free to continue their quest, finding pieces in Lab the Labyrinthina in Skyrim, Elden Grove in Valenwood, the Halls of the Colossus in Elsewhere, Crystal Tower in the Somerset Isles, Crypt of Hearts in High Rock, Mirkwood in Blackmarsh, and Dugoth Ur in Morrowind. With the staff whole again, Rhea appears to the champion with her final task. The Jewel of Fire in the Imperial Palace has been imbued with the power of the Staff of Chaos. It holds Yegar's life force and the ability to free the Emperor from his dimensional prison. Rhea uses the last of her power to magically disguise the champion, allowing them to sneak past the guards of the Imperial Palace. The champion sneaks past the palace guards, though in the heart of the palace, Yegar's minions are not fooled by the illusion forcing the champion to fight their way to Yegar. Trapped in the palace, Yegar is forced to fight the champion. While critically wounded, Yegar erects a magical force field. The champion takes advantage of the opening and slams the Staff of Chaos into the Jewel of Fire. Yegar looks on in horror, realizing his mistake, shouting, You must not! That jewel holds my life force! Yegar melts away as the staff opens a portal, freeing the Emperor and, the, and an Imperial Guard. The Emperor thanks the champion and dubs them the Eternal Champion. Thus concludes the events of Elder Scrolls Arena. You know what that plot reminds me of? Uh, literally the first D&D campaign anyone everywhere in any universe has ever played. Yes, but more specifically, like the Icewind Dale books. Yeah. Like the Drist, Duerden um, yeah, stories. Just very like typical d and it's, it's very straightforward in terms of a plot. Yeah, it might sound a little convoluted, but... Um, when we were starting off this um, series, when we were kind of doing the background research on it, when we were kind of starting things off, typically when we do a series, I say to Jeremy, okay, how do we want to break this up? Um, for this case, it was, all right, uh, do you want to do Daggerfall or Arena? And he said Arena, and I'm like, crap, because I knew that Arena, st <laughs> I, I knew that Arena's story was a lot uh, simpler than uh, Daggerfall's. But yeah, it's a very straightforward and probably the easiest to digest story because it is the first foray into um, the series. I, I think it's a great first story because that, like I kind of like I said, that is literally everyone's first like tabletop RPG experience. Go grab the five magic X, Y, and Zs, put them together, and the evil guy dies. Yeah, basically. And um, obviously a big point of Page to Pixel here is to break down the themes and inspirations behind these series. And we'll just say it right now, this is just D and D, you know, in, in a lot of oh, ways. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not like it's derivative, but in a way that I think is cool and accessible. Cozy. It's cozy. It's very That's, cozy. Like I said, I I've played so many of that. It's not even funny. Yeah, absolutely. Keeping on that theme of D and D, a lot of early PC gaming and early console gaming, um, you'd have your typical arcade action games, your Pac-Mans, your Mario-style games. But, of course, the hardcore gamers back in the day were the ones that wanted to play D&D-style campaigns. So you have, like, the Wizardry series, if you've ever played any of those or heard of those. Those were some of, like, the earliest, like, uh, computer RPGs that came out in the 80s and 90s. The Ultima series. Um, they actually made a couple, like, D&D-specific, like, Pools of Radiance, I remember, was one of the games. So back in, like, the 80s and early 90s, a lot of um, PC players, at least in the United States, uh, the hardcore players would be more drawn to um, 
RPGs and Bethesda was trying to kind of tap into that market with this new IP and it was largely successful. Um, I know with Arena and Daggerfall after the releases, because you don't have digital platforms quite yet, um, they did updates and they did like remastered versions and stuff like that where it kind of ironed out some of the bugs. But I just I just think about a lot of those really early RPGs on the PC and how just how like brutally um, tough they are to kind of get into. Uh, I remember being as being a kid and my babysitter had a copy of Pool of Radiance, which was an old school RPG Um on the NES and she also had Ultima and I remember trying to play those and I'm like four or five years old and I am just like gone I'm just lost. You know what were I mean? Those tech, were those text based or were those still No, they they were they were they were um graphically designed. They had graphic characters and stuff that you could interact with. But have you ever no, played a text based? I'm I have never played one. I'm kinda of just I like... I've briefly like when I go to the Midwest Gaming Classic they have all those computers set up with sure. like um what is it, Zork, I believe it is. Yeah, that's one of them. Uh, yeah, I have played them a little bit, but no it's those i think a lot of the the ones i'm talking about are actually have some graphical representation whether if it's just plain 2d sprites on a static image um or if it's you know it really depends on the game and obviously as technology got better so did the 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 game quality but arena is just a really good example of um of this continuing in the early 90s and i was trying to think i was actually on a walk today and i was thinking like when did rpgs become more successful. I don't want to take up too much time before we get into Daggerfall here in a second, but that's kind of a question I want to kind of pinpoint to you. When do you think RPGs really began to um, have more of a popular appeal rather are than... You, are an, you talking an like, like I'm, broad video? I'm, I'm talking uh, specifically video game RPGs. So Western, Japanese, any of that stuff. I guess my question is, are you talking like mainstream appeal? Because I, I would say they've always been popular... I'm talking yeah, mainstream popular mainstream appeal, like on the TV appeal. I mean, just like everything else, PS2 era. Yeah, I was thinking. Uh, you know, I'm looking it, back it, on it. It seems like that's kind of the the go-to is just like that's era. That's the era when things be, it, it became a slightly more okay to be nerdy. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's just kind of like it, it. It felt like video game RPGs lagged behind pen and paper RPGs in terms of its mainstream popularity by like 10 or so years because up until what 2005 2010 even D&D was still considered underground and nerdy but now it's like everyone loves it you know yeah um and I think RPGs are the same way um I guess looking back at the 90s sure there's games like the Final Fantasy series were really popular um, Dragon Quest is super popular in Japan, but I think for like mainstream audiences, like in the Western part of the world, uh, thinking like uh, Final Fantasy VII really kind of broke the mold in a lot of ways. Um, but I would say Pokemon. Pokemon, yeah, you might not think of it as an RPG, but it really is. It has all those same characteristics. And look how many copies the Pokemon games have sold over time. Yeah. And how it, you know, I probably would not be as interested in some of those other rpgs to come in the future years if it wasn't for pokemon kind of opening that door in a lot of ways and i think final fantasy pokemon i guess chrono chrono trigger um some of those other rpgs in the 90s kind of set the tone but yeah like you said the ps2 ps3 era when you're getting a lot more final fantasies um and other you know really good solid rpgs kind of coming through the pipeline but that's an aside um not something maybe we can talk about later but i just thought it was an interesting question to kind of ponder are we ready to talk about daggerfall Get at her. All right. So Daggerfall came out in fall of 1996 for DOS. Um, so Daggerfall, 
I wrote on my notes here, I wrote Daggerfall plot in parentheses, good luck. So what's interesting compared to arena is that Daggerfall's plot is kind of jumping into the, the, the realm of non-linearity. Daggerfall is set in the Iliac Bay between the provinces of High Rock and Hammerfell. The player is sent there by, uh, at the personal request of the emperor. So you're essentially an agent working for the emperor. So he wants the player to do two things. First, you must free the ghosts of King Lysandus from his earthly shackles. And he was a king, uh, a human king, that was killed in a battle. But his, his ghost is still sort of causing torment up in this area. Uh, secondly, the player must discover what happened to a letter from the emperor to a former queen of Daggerfall. And because there's a lot of political motion going on, when they say the Queen of Daggerfell, that can mean one of many people um, during the timeline of this game. So this letter, which the Emperor gives to you and kind of comes off that it's kind of a nonchalant thing, but it actually is the most important piece of this puzzle. Um, the letter reveals that Lysandus' mother, the guy who died and you have to kind of free his, free his soul, that his mother, Nulfaga, knows the location of the Montella. So the Montella is the key to re resurrecting the first Numidium. So the Numidium is this tool used in um, previous eras, which is essentially just a giant brass golem. Golem. It's like a giant war machine, right? It's a giant. Not Think a mech. The end of the first Thor movie. Right. It's a giant mech suit thing, but it's you know it's it's controlled by this Mantella, this magical key. So the Emperor wants his spy force to um, kind of coerce Nilfaga into revealing the location of the Montella. So the blades, which we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about when we get to Oblivion, which is essentially the personal bodyguard of the Emperor, um, so that he, they can kind of find out where the Numidium is and reconstruct it and get it remobilized, right? They want to use it for, the Emperor wants to use the Numidium for his own uh, goals. But through a series of mishaps and confusions, the letter fell into the hands of an orc named Gotwork. So not knowing what the Mantella is, Gotward consults Manamarco, the King of Worms, who is the leader of the Necromancers. Uh, during this time, the Underking, who originally destroyed the first Numidium because of its misuse by Tiber Septim a few eras ago, uh, is recuperating deep within the tomb of High Rock after expending so much energy destroying the Numidium the first time. In order for the player to give the Mantella to anyone, the player must kill Lysandius' murderer and put his ghost to rest. That's the first part of the quest. After accomplishing this, the player must steal the totem of Tiber Septum from King Gothrid of Daggerfall and free the Mantella from its prison in Aetherius, the spirit realm. Right. So following this, the player has six options of what to do with the Mantella. So here's the different endings that can occur. So if the player gives the Mantella to the Underking who is, we'll talk about him in a second here. Um, he absorbs its power, passes it into eternal rest, and creates a large magic-free area around himself. If Gortwerg, the orc, is victorious, he uses the Numidium to destroy the Imperial forces and the Bay of Kings, where all of these kings are vying for power in the area around Daggerfall. So, the, so King Gortwerg destroys all the kings, and after destroying all the kingdoms, the Underking arrives shortly thereafter to destroy the Numidian once and for all but he does actually lose his life in the process. The Underking does. Gortwerg then succeeds in creating Orsinium, the kingdom of orcs. If the blades are victorious, so if the um, if you give the totem and Mantella to the Imperial side, uh, if they are victorious, they succeed in recreating the first Numidium and use it to defeat the Bay of Kings and the orcs and unite all of the provinces of Tamriel under the empire once again. If any of the Bay Kings win, there's quite a few human and elven forces within the Bay. Um, if you give 
the um, Mantella and the Totem to any of them, that king or whoever ruler will use that Numidium to defeat all the other kings just before the Under King destroys him and him and itself. So, you know, the, the, the kings of the bay will use it, but then the Under King comes, destroys the Numidium, and then destroys himself. If Mana Marco, the King of Worms, uh, receives a Mantella, he makes himself a god and ascends. Going back to the Underking. So the Underking is the, one of the options that you can kind of give the Mantella for. And his real name is Zurin Arctis. And essentially, he is why the Numidium was created in the first place. He was essentially, he was an uh, ancient magician, ancient powerful person within um the empire who created this he he created the numidium and to power it he used his own like soul he used a part of his soul to power this so that's one of the reasons why he's trying to make sure it doesn't come back so that's why in all of these other plot points um that the under king comes back and destroys it it's because it's him he's trying to undo all of this chaos right so and what's interesting is um all of these plot points, all of these possible endings, like I talked about, when looking at the history of the Elder Scrolls, people kind of look back at this event because there's there's obviously several different options, right? You kind of assume, well, what's the correct ending? Well, because of going to the spirit realm and interacting with outside dimensions, it kind of opens up this time variable where all of these endings happen simultaneously. So the orcs get it, the kings get it, the uh, underking does it, gets it. So all of the endings I just told you, chronologically, canonically, they all happen at the same time. Makes sense if you don't think about it. Yes. So if you're wondering why we're kind of struggling with this stuff, it's because a little bit of it we don't understand ourselves. Looking at the canon of this entire story, all of these events actually do happen. So it's not like, oh, this is the right ending because this is what the plot line. No, all of these actually are the right ending because they all happen to take place because of this space-time continuum issue. Can I say one thing about the Underking? Yeah. Um, so if you look at the cover of Daggerfall, you'll see this like... That's him, yeah. ...skeletal being, uh, sort of lich-like. Yep. Uh, and I think it's a really cool sort of artistic take on him because he looks balls ass evil yep but he's actually a good guy yeah he's you know he's like, just like his primary goal is just to die <laughs> like, yeah he just wants to finally be dead but he will also destroy the numidium you know what i mean like it's an interesting sort of dichotomy they play between like he's he looks super evil but he's actually probably the most benevolent person in this story. Yeah, because he doesn't have like ulterior motives. He's like, yeah, I just want to rest because I saw what this thing did before. Oh, wait, you guys are trying to resurrect it. Don't do that. You know, like. <laughs> no, don't. No, don't. <laughs> you know, he's, so I guess it kind of. Yeah. Now that you kind of mentioned that, now that I think about it, it kind of shows how. You what, just can't judge a book by the cover. Well, yeah, well, literally. Um, but how power corrupts and all of these petty kingdoms and. Um, powers that be are trying to mess with things that they shouldn't. Um, and I think overall, like the plot is a little bit more compelling than arena. Absolutely. This, this is like the first game where it feels like, yep, this is elder scrolls. hundred percent. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't there also, um, like a hidden faction system where you like, you have to make the people like you in order to even have the option to give them the new, the 
uh, the man, the Mantella. Yeah, it's kind of like a reputation system. Yeah, but it's like all hidden. Yeah, yeah. This Daggerfall is. I really wish I was my age right now when this came out because I would be like, just balls deep in this, you know? Because it's re- it, yeah. yeah, like this is like with Arena. I was watching it. I'm like, oh man, this is a bit cheesy. But when like Daggerfall, like it just felt oddly familiar because it feels so organic. I mean, based- I plan on finish playing it. Like that's how much I have like enjoyed the little bit I played. Like I do plan to keep playing it. Like I said, if you guys are ever curious in playing Daggerfall, and I'll, I'll send you the same files, Jeremy, for uh, Daggerfall Unity. It's it's pretty easy to set up, like I said, um, and it's probably the best way of playing it because it's very, it's it's still you know it's still 1996, but I think with a lot of the things that the amazing modding community has done is have really made it a lot more uh, what's the term quality of life improvements for sure. But yeah, that's Daggerfall. It has uh, a lot of different branching pathways, so it really does encourage multiple playthroughs and i think that's so cool about it is you you sort of see some of that in the other elder scrolls games you know especially in morrowind when you have the different factions and different houses you can join but with oblivion and skyrim you get more linear choices i don't can you really do anything else in oblivion other than just follow the quest line like you can't give you can't give you can't join the bad guys in skyrim you get the decision to join the the nords of the imperials but that's that's not that's yeah because you're still gonna go fight and kill Alduin, you know. So I, these, I think, I think at the heart of of all the Elder Scrolls games, though, is you know, like even when we get into uh, more of an Oblivion, the the, the core storyline is always really really short. Like if you just do the core story, you can get through it in four hours, right? Like right. The, the the point of these games is the exploration and the freedom and and sort of immersing yourself in these massive worlds. So, like, I, I know the Arena and Daggerfall short stories seem really short, but there's tons of other quests and exploration to do, you know? Oh, absolutely. Like, it, it doesn't undercut the the scope and scale of the accomplishment that was made. Yeah, 100%. And like we were saying earlier at the beginning of this episode, Daggerfall was the largest game you know, in existence before a procedurally generated space sim came out. So that just kind of tells you how um, massive of a, that's a world. That's not fair because the universe is always going to be bigger than a planet. Right. I I, I totally agree. I'm, I'm still going to give Daggerfall its, its its crown, so to speak. So yeah, that um, really wraps up Daggerfall. Um, how are we feeling so far? I'm feeling great. I'm feeling like I'm ready to play some Daggerfall. No, like I said, uh, you know, sometimes with some of this research, it can be a bit more... Uh, overwhelming than I want it to be but with this stuff I'm really like eager to do this like when we sat down to record this one I was really eager to just kind of talk about this stuff because the series is so cool and you know it gives a lot of context yes context and substance to some of the stuff because like you'll 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 interact with like the mages guild and you'll see like some racial stuff happen but like looking at like the this this really like helps flesh out oblivion i think really too because like the oblivion crisis and stuff well it makes Um, all the games make sense you know i played you play through them and like you maybe you pick up a book here and there that's not the lusty argonian made and, and read a page or two of it yeah a lot of time it's just a bunch of like disjointed events and it's not like you're gonna remember and 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 trace these things across all these different games so Having a chance to look at sort of the the genesis of the of the universe, how this area, this arena, so to speak, became to be settled by all the different players in, in the political game, it, it puts a lot into perspective and it, it makes you appreciate the game even more. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I don't think with the other episodes we're going to necessarily get so in depth with 
you know, the, the origin content. That's really the focus of this episode. Obviously we're going to talk about the background in depth with the future games, but um, yeah, this is really setting the tone for the subsequent episodes and I'm really excited to kind of get into those. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I would like to dive a little bit into some of that stuff just to add that little bit more context, but I don't think we're going to get to the, uh, the eyes glazing over stage. Right, like I was kind of doing with the mythology <laughs> side of things. Well, if that's uh, if that's everything, I think we can wrap up episode one so far. I think so. Thanks for Our, sticking with us through all that. Yeah, I pre- if you're still listening, we appreciate you. So that being said, we are going to take off for now. Um, the next episode that's going to be coming out after this is going to be more focused on uh, Morrowind and Oblivion. And then we're going to jump into hopefully the final episode which was going to be Skyrim and Elder Scrolls Online. Are we uh, skipping Battlespire and Redguard? Yeah, I think we are. Um, that might be I, a if we if we I get some. T- don't. If we we're doing a deep dive, sir. Okay, okay, maybe we'll we'll okay we'll do this. Okay, so we will start um, next episode with a brief. You have five minutes to tell me everything about Battlespire and Redguard. Um, and then we're going to jump into Morrowind and Oblivion. We were going to, we will touch on them, but they are more standalone. They are not like this huge immersive. Um, no, I watched gameplay of Red Card. I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to play it. Yeah, we're, but we're gonna have to. We're doing this for the for the peeps. So, um, yeah. That being said, ladies and gentlemen, we appreciate you guys coming along, staying with us. Uh, I hope you guys enjoy um, this series as it kind of develops over the course of this summer. So that being said. Um, my name's Reed Jolin. Always, like I said, check us out on Spotify, Instagram, Facebook. We're all over the place. Wherever you get your podcasts, we're always going to be there. So, Jeremy, if you've got anything fun to send us out with, do it now. Stop right there, criminal scum. That's right. That's, 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 that's perfect. All right, guys, we'll see you later. See you guys. And the, oh my God, here we go.